Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Betty's Autopsy Betty Jewell's autopsy was a disaster. Margaret could barely think after Amos's horrifying death, let alone focus on the job. By the time she dragged herself into the biohazard suit and started working on Betty, the girl's body had mostly dissolved. Margaret approached the trolley, Clarence beside her in his suit. Gitch, Marcus, and Dr. Dan stood next to Betty's blackened corpse. It made for tight quarters, but Clarence refused to leave her side. Gitch and Marcus had done an amazing job cleaning up. The autopsy room looked spotless. The trolley carried a steady, slow, thick stream of black goo down the runners and into the white sink. Margaret wanted to look at those crawling things. They were the key to everything now, but she'd waited too long. Any crawlers in Betty's body had already dissolved. Even the samples that Amos had taken were now nothing but chunky black liquid. She'd let her grief get in the way of her work. Margaret felt weak. She put a hand on the autopsy trolley to steady herself. When she looked at the table, her mind's eye saw Betty Jewell's skinless hand stabbing the scalpel at Amos. When Margaret looked down, she saw Amos clawing at the throat of his biohazard suit, unable to get his hands at the cut, unable to stop the blood from sheeting the inside of his visor. When she saw the drainage sink, she saw Betty's brain splattering against the white epoxy and dripping toward the drain. Clarence's hand on her shoulder. Margo, you okay? She nodded. Yeah, I'm fine. A lie anyone could see through. Dan, Margaret said. Have you watched the video from my helmet? The video of the autopsy? Yes, ma'am, Dr. Dan said. Several times. And what did you see? Something crawling in her face. Dr. Braun thought it was crawling along the V3 nerve toward the brain. Do you agree? Certainly looked that way, Dan said. Too bad they didn't have a brain to look at. No chance of that thanks to Clarence's bullet and rapid decomposition. When that crawler reached the brain, then what? Then it would come apart. It would split up into those muscle fibers Amos saw, split apart, reorganize, come together again, in a mesh, just like in Perry Dossie's brain. The crawlers, Margaret said. They want to replicate what we've seen in Dossie's CAT scans. Dr. Dan stared at her. That's a pretty big leap. We haven't seen anything like these crawlers before. I read your reports on the host found in Glidden, the father, the mother, and little boy. You had fresh bodies, yet they didn't have these crawling things. It's something new, obviously, Margaret said. I don't care if it's a leap. It's right. These things infect the human body, maybe replicate somehow, then crawl toward the brain. If we can stop them from crawling, we just plain stop them. It's got a structure, Dan said. A shape. It can move. For that, it needs a cytoskeleton. The little things have skeletons? Clarence asked. Cytoskeleton, Dan said. It's uh, like, like a microscopic scaffolding that lets a cell hold its shape. Without it, a cell would just be a membrane holding fluid, Margaret said. Without a cytoskeleton to hold structure, it would be like a water balloon. Amos thought the crawlers looked like human muscle fibers, 
if these things are some kind of modified muscle cell and we disrupted their cell structure, then the cells couldn't contract. They couldn't move. They couldn't crawl. So you dissolve this cytoskeleton, Clarence said. And that stops it? That's it? It's not that easy, Dan said. Our normal cells also have cytoskeletons. Anything that would kill the crawlers would also kill our cells. But it's something, Margaret said. A human body can regrow lost cells, eventually repair damage. But these crawlers are so small, just a few cells. If we disrupt their cytoskeleton, they might just die. At any rate, we can stop them before they reach the brain. I can order a screen, Dan said. We can get all the drugs that might work and have them ready when we get another host. If we get another host, Clarence said. Let's hope they're on anymore. Oh, grow up, Clarence, Margaret said. You know goddamn well there will be more. There's always more. Silence filled the trailer. Margaret rewound the moment in her head, realized just how nasty she had sounded. Sorry, she said. Clarence shrugged. Don't sweat it, Doc. Can we test these cytoskeleton wreckers on Betty's remains? There's nothing left, Margaret said. We're too late for that. I'll tell you what we're going to do with this body. We're going to burn it. She stared at Betty's remains, the blackened, rotting, murderous remains. Uh, Margot? Clarence said. Don't we want to, I don't know, study it? She turned on him. What exactly are we going to find, huh? It's another blackened corpse, Clarence. Apoptosis chain reaction. Boom, dead, done. That's it. She has whatever the father had, so we'll run chemical analysis on his remains. We don't need this, this thing. She turned back to Gitch and Marcus. They both looked at her with pity in their eyes. They were saddened by Amos's death. She knew that. But they just didn't understand. Incinerate this bitch, Margaret said. I don't want a single ounce of her left. You understand me? Gitch and Marcus both nodded slowly. She turned and walked out of the autopsy room. Burn, burn, yes, you're gonna burn. Redux. Even though most of the jewel house was already gone, flames still shot into the dark sky. Flashing fire truck lights added to the visuals, the mixed illumination coloring snowflakes that dropped straight down like slow motion rain. In the dark isolation of the jewel property, the place felt like an island of light surrounded by an infinite black ocean. Hoses from the trucks poured water onto the burning house, turning the yard into a slushy mess filled with cinders and mud. A lead on a triangle case taking him to a house on fire? Gosh, Dew thought, what a surprise. If he'd come as soon as they reached Gaylord, he'd probably have the jewels in custody right now. Instead, Dew had a feeling all he'd get would be more corpses for Margaret's collection. Margaret. She was a mess. Amos had gone out hard. The longer she stayed in this business, in the secret land of the Murray Longworths and the Dew Phillipses, the more she'd understand shit like this was inevitable. He wondered if she'd block it out, or someday in the future she'd be telling her own war stories. Dew looked at Perry, who stood expressionless, watching the fire. What was going on in that big melon of his? Three days since they'd tussled, and Perry really seemed to have come around. Looked like Margaret was right again. Dew really did hope it was a genuine change. As fucked up as it sounded, and it sounded damn fucked up, he was starting to like the kid. 
Dew nudged Perry. You feel anything? Perry shook his head. Just that gray feeling. Something else is there, but I can't lock onto it. How about that other feeling? Dew asked. The one where they're mounting the fourth quarter comeback. Yeah, Perry said. I still feel that. Only now, it's stronger. A man wearing fireman's gear stomped through the slush toward him. You do, Phillips? Dew nodded and offered his hand. Brandon Jastrowski, the police chief said I need to help you guys in any way. Brandon looked at Perry, then offered his hand. And you are? Perry looked at Dew. Dew nodded. Perry Dossie, Perry said, shaking the offered hand. Dossie? Scary Perry Dossie? Perry nodded. Holy shit, Brandon said. A real pleasure to meet you. Used to love watching you play. Oh, how I hate Ohio State, am I right? Perry nodded again. And what was up with all that murder stuff in the news a few months back? Mistaken identity, Dew said. Perry's working for the government now. What's the deal with the house? Any bodies? Unfortunately, there are, Brandon said. Adult male, adult female, and a child, maybe seven to ten years old. Probably Bobby and Candy Jewel. They own the place. And their daughter, Chelsea. Probably. Bodies are in bad shape, Brandon said. All three were in the kitchen when the fire started. Definitely arson, no question. And some major foul play. The woman has a hole in her skull, probably a gunshot to the back of the head. We need the bodies, Dew said. Excuse me? The bodies, we need them. Have your men get them out, put them in body bags, then leave them over there under that little swing. Dew pointed to a tree in the front yard. Two ropes hung down from a bare, snow-covered branch and ended in a little plank of snow-covered wood. Brandon looked at the swing, then looked back at Dew. But, uh, we need to take the bodies to the county morgue. Not today, Dew said. The morgue is coming to us, so to speak. Put the bodies in the bags, put the bags over there, do it as fast as you can. Understood? Brandon stared for a second, then nodded. He went back to the fire. Dew pulled out his cell phone and dialed. Otto answered immediately. Otto, it's Dew. We're at the jewel place. Whole family is dead. House fire. Maybe some gunplay. Perry go off again? No, he had nothing to do with it. Seriously? Shut your pie hole, Dew said. Get your team moving. I want the Margot mobile here ASAP. It's time for Margaret to sack up and get back to work. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. The map. Chelsea sat behind a glass door, looking out over Mr. Jenkins's backyard. She'd pulled the curtain almost closed, leaving only a one-inch space to look through the glass. That was enough to see up the hill and watch the flames lick up from her house. It looked so small from this far away. She couldn't really make out individual people, but she knew they were there. One person in particular. The boogeyman. Chelsea was very careful not to reach to him, not to connect. If he sensed her now, when he was this close... Chelsea, Daddy called from Mr. Jenkins's room. I think you need to see this. Chelsea carried her bowl of ice cream into the room and sat down next to Daddy. Mr. Jenkins didn't have ice cream bars, but double chocolate almond wasn't bad either. The TV was showing a commercial. Five people were in the living room. Ryan Rosnowski, Daddy, old Sam Collins, Mommy, Mr. Burkle the postman, and Mr. Jenkins. Mr. Jenkins sat in a lazy boy. He didn't look well all sweaty and pale under his big red beard, but he was getting better fast. Chelsea could already sense his mind. Mommy's smoochies had worked. Chelsea knew that was very important. The ones Chelsea kissed could kiss others. God's love could spread from person to person to person until everyone in the world knew the joy. Mommy was sitting on Mr. Jenkins's lap, petting his head with a wet washcloth. It'll be okay, Mr. Jenkins. You'll feel better very soon. The man looked at her with sunken eyes. He smiled. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of God's love. It's coming back on, Daddy said. He pointed the remote at the TV and turned up the volume. The picture showed a pretty lady sitting behind a desk. Once again, the breaking news tonight is a transport plane that went off the radar somewhere in Otsego County, the lady said. The plane was carrying samples of necrotizing fasciitis bacteria, the bacterium that causes flesh-eating disease, which may have been released in the crash and has already been potentially linked to one death. The National Guard has been called in, and state officials have ordered a temporary evacuation of Gaylord. The picture changed to show a big man in an immaculate blue uniform. Everyone in the living room stirred uncomfortably at the sight. Chelsea felt a similar reaction, her body recoiling from the uniform, from the gun on the man's hip. This was an enemy of God. This was another one of the devils. Below the man were the words, Trooper Michael Adams, Michigan State Police Spokesman. Below that was a phone number that started with 800. It's only a temporary evacuation, said the tool of the devil. It's important we test everyone for exposure and do a sweep of the town. Then everyone can return. 
For those without transportation or those who can't travel on their own, we're providing a toll-free number for people to call. Very soon, we'll be doing door-to-door checks just to make sure we haven't missed anyone. The National Guard will be assisting with this. Turn it off, Chelsea said. Daddy fumbled with the remote, then turned off the TV. All eyes turned to Chelsea. They are coming for us, she said. That's what they mean by door-to-door. They want to find us and kill us. The National Guard, that means soldiers. They want to stop the gates of heaven. I knew they were out to get us, Daddy said. He was shaking with anger and excitement. Chelsea, soldiers, what are we going to do? Everyone in the living room nodded. Chelsea heard them all mumbling that terrifying word. Soldiers. God sent the soldiers to us, Chelsea said. You must trust in him. It's all part of his plan. He sent us soldiers with lots of guns. Do you see? We need to show the soldiers how much God loves them. She pushed out images of men with guns standing around a gate. She felt the images flash in the minds of the others. And then something strange happened. For just a moment, their thoughts melded as one, and the image took on startling clarity. Like it was real. As soon as it started, the moment was gone. What was that? Mr. Burkle said. What the fuck just happened? Bad word, Mr. Burkle, Chelsea said. Mr. Burkle hung his head. I'm sorry, Chelsea. She didn't know what had just happened. She knew that she was the cause of it, though. Everyone thinking together, thinking the same thoughts. They had felt so, so smart. They all ate their ice cream and stared at Chelsea. They wanted to know what to do next. Chelsea closed her eyes and thought hard. Chauncey, where do we build the gate? You have to find a place. Should we go into the woods? No, not this time. The devil will use bombs on you there. If you go to a place with many people, the devil will hesitate to use bombs, and that could get you a little more time. Somewhere with lots of people. The Dollies would probably like that a lot. Lots of people to play with when they got there. But Chelsea still had to hide everyone, or the devil would find them. Mr. Jenkins, do you have a map? Course, honey, he said. Mommy helped him out of the chair. He waddled to the kitchen. Chelsea had to get everyone out of there. She was running away, not just from the devils, but from the boogeyman. Running away wasn't as bad as peeing her pants, but it wasn't good either. She was growing stronger. She knew that. Maybe someday soon, she could face the boogeyman, face him, and kill him. Mr. Jenkins came back with a folded paper map and walked to the dining room table. It was covered in guns. Four hunting rifles with those big scope things, two shotguns, and one pistol. Boxes of ammo filled in the spaces between the guns. Can you guys clear this off? Mr. Jenkins said. Chelsea wants to see a map. Hands shot in to remove the guns and ammunition. Chelsea liked how fast everyone moved. Mr. Jenkins spread the map out on the newly cleared table. Chelsea, Mr. Burkle, Mommy, and Mr. Jenkins gathered around it. Chelsea stared at it, but she didn't really know how to read a map. Mommy stroked her hair. Do you know what you're looking for, honey? Chelsea nodded, then shook her head. How can you tell where there's lots of people? 
Mr. Burkle pointed to a yellow spot on the map. Chelsea saw the word Flint in big black letters on top of the yellow. See the yellow, Mr. Burkle said. The more yellow, the more people there are. Chelsea bent her head and stared at the map. Her blonde hair hung down and touched the paper. She put her finger on the map and raised her head, her face all smiles. This place has the most yellow, so that means it has the most people, right? Mr. Burkle looked, then nodded. Yeah, there would be lots of people there, all right. This is where we're going. So what now? Mommy asked. Well, Mr. Burkle said, we have to figure out how to show a soldier God's love, make sure no one finds us, and get out of town without getting killed. And pick up more dolly daddies on the way, Chelsea said. We need enough dollies to make the gate. Mr. Jenkins, how many people will your big car hold? The Winnebago, Jenkins said. Mm, probably ten more people, no problem. Will that be enough? Chelsea shrugged. It was getting easier to reach out to find the others. She was in contact with three more dolly daddies. So many things to do. Give a soldier smoochies, get past the other soldiers, and get to the place with lots of people. How could they do it all? She had an idea, an idea that Chauncey wouldn't like. Maybe she just wouldn't tell Chauncey. She wasn't sure if the idea would work, though. She needed some help to figure it out. What she needed was more brain power. Like a few minutes ago, when they all had that feeling. Everyone, think with me, Chelsea said. She closed her eyes. Even though she couldn't see, she felt the others close their eyes, one by one. Their thoughts melded together, and they started to plan. Day 6 Inbred Trailer Trash Hicks Watching Springer Three more cars to go. She could fool them. She had to fool them. They wanted to kill her whole family, but Bernadette wouldn't let that happen. She had to stay calm, keep the kids calm. William was in the passenger seat, all buckled in. He was scared, she knew, but he was being quiet. Sally and Christine were in the back seat. They were being so good, just perfect little angels. She tucked a blanket around them so they wouldn't get cold. Two more cars to go. She pulled her sob up one car length. Sean was still back home. Cheating bastard. Let him stay there. Let him have the whole house to himself. He'd fucked around on her. She just knew it. Maybe with that little whore secretary at his construction office. He hired a girl who dyed her hair jet black and wore all that eye makeup to be a secretary? Bernadette didn't know what a goth was, and she didn't want to know. Probably just another term for slut, which is what the little whore most likely was. She knew he'd cheated because the voices told her so. One more car to go. She pulled up again. She rolled down her window. Cold winter air poured in. Soldiers were everywhere. Soldiers and cops. They wanted to kill her. She just knew it. She didn't want to go near them. But the voices had told her to go this way, told her she could get past the checkpoint, onto the highway, and away from Gaylord. The soldiers had some kind of test. Maybe it was like a breathalyzer. She'd passed those before. The voices told her she could pass it, and she believed them. After all, if you can't believe the voices in your own head, who can you believe? Mom, where are we going? We're leaving, William, she said. Now I told you to be quiet. Are you going to talk again? 
William's eyes grew wide, and he shook his head violently. No, he wasn't going to talk again. If he did, she'd just have to deal with him. The pickup truck ahead of her pulled forward. A state trooper stood in front of her car. He waved her closer. She inched up slowly until he snapped his palm out, signaling her to stop. She stopped. Another state trooper leaned down and looked in her open window. He had one hand on her door, the other hand on his gun, peeking out under that ridiculous cop hat. Where did they get these meatheads anyway? Good afternoon, ma'am, he said. We've set up this roadblock to do a quick test for bacteria that may be in the area. Are you familiar with the situation? Of course I'm familiar with the situation. You think I don't watch the news? You think I'm some inbred trailer trash hick that watches the Springer show? I know all about the situation, and we're fine. We don't have the bacteria. We'll just drive through then, and you can get on with it. The trooper looked less than pleased that Bernadette would not be taking the stupid test, but those were the brakes. Fuck him. I'm afraid we do need to test you, ma'am, the trooper said. It will only take a second. We also need to test your children, but let's get you first. He held up a narrow foil envelope. He was wearing surgical gloves. Please open this packet, ma'am, then pull out the swab inside, run it along your cheek and gum line, then hand it back to me stick first. I'm sorry, officer, but are you deaf? I just told you we don't need to be tested. Let's remember that my taxes pay your salary. Now, unless you want me to take your badge number and make your life a living hell, get your partner out of the way. We're in a hurry. The trooper stared at her for a second. Then he looked at William. Then he looked in the back seat. His brow furrowed beneath the brim of his hat. His eyes widened. He suddenly stood up and took a step back. His hand stayed on the grip of his gun. Ma'am, step out of the car right now. He knew. That fucking cop knew. Bernadette pushed the gas pedal to the floor. Her sobs shot forward. The state trooper in front of her car dove out of the way. The on-ramp to I-75 was only a few hundred feet from here. She could make it. There was a state police car parked across the on-ramp. Maybe there was enough room in the shoulder to get around it. She heard a popping sound, like cap guns. Her car lurched to the left. Bernadette turned the steering wheel hard to the right, trying to recover. More popping sounds. The car pulled violently to the right and skidded. It hit the snowbank and stopped suddenly, throwing her forward. The tires. They'd shot out the tires, like this was a fucking TV show like Frankie Anvil or something. Did they not understand that the voice had told her she could go past? Bernadette opened the door, grabbed her purse, and got out of the sob. Down on the ground, a trooper shouted. More shouts, all of them saying the same thing. Down on the ground now! They had guns pointed at her. Blue jackets and round hats everywhere, in all directions. They were going to kill her. Bernadette reached into her purse and pulled out the butcher knife. That would show them. It had worked on her daughters, made them shut up, and it had sure as hell taught Sean an important lesson about not fucking around on his wife. It worked on them, it would work on the troopers. She rushed at the trooper who had been leaning into her car. Everything blurred. Her body twitched and trembled. She dropped the knife and fell to the cold, slushy pavement. Such agony. The pain stopped as suddenly as it started, leaving an echo effect rolling through her body. She shook her head and tried to stand, but suddenly there were hands all over her. She felt her face pushed into the wet pavement, something heavy on her spine. Her hands were pulled behind her back, and she felt handcuffs 
snap into place. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.